Christmas songs. I'm sure that we all have our favorites, and I'm sure that there are some Christmas songs that you love to sing every single year. But have you ever stopped to, uh, to examine the lyrical content of the most popular Christmas classics? For example, have you ever wondered what the little drummer boy was doing before being invited to come play a drum solo for the baby Jesus? I'm guessing that he was just some annoying kid that was constantly annoying his neighbors with all of the, you know, pa-rumpa-pum-pumming. You know, it's like, who wants to live next door to that? Then there's the song about the 12 days of Christmas. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we've all sung the song. I'm sure we're all familiar with the lyrics. But have you ever stopped to ask, what in the world was that person thinking when they decided to send their true love 12 drummers drumming. Who wants that? Or how about the 11 pipers piping? The 10 lords a-leaping and the 9 ladies a-dancing is not something that you want in your living room. Not to mention 8 maids a-milking, 7 swans a-swimming, 6 geese a-laying, 5 gold rings. Well, I I could go for the 5 gold rings. But 4 calling birds? No, thank you. 3 French hens, really? French hens? Two turtle doves and a partridge along with a pear tree? How did they even get the pear tree out of the ground? And, and then how was this delivered? Amazon didn't exist when this song was written. And yet we sing this song year after year without giving much thought to how insane these lyrics actually are. There's also the Christmas classic, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And I don't know about you, but this song always freaked me out when I was a kid. You know, like a lot of kids sung this song, sang this song, but I was always just a little bit nervous to sing it because, you know, this song is about some guy named Santa Claus who watches us while we sleep. That's just weird. What, do they have access to our Arlo's up in the, in the North Pole or something? They know when we're awake up there? This leads me to wonder, why is Santa so interested in our sleeping patterns? Can't say for sure, but it's weird. Speaking of wonder, though, I want to take a, a time, uh, a few minutes here to consider some of the most uh, you know, uh, common Christmas songs that uh, convey this idea of wonder. You see, Christmas is a time when our hearts are filled with a sense of wonder, and it's for this reason that this theme uh, of wonder is found in many Christmas songs. For example, I'm sure you all know Bing Crosby, right? He's high on the, the list of artists we still listen to. No? No Bing Crosby? He's saying about the joy we experience whenever we find ourselves walking in a winter wonderland. In this way, Crosby was describing this sense of wonder and this amazement that fills our hearts at Christmas time as the winter snows, or in Texas, the winter rains, turn our world into a magical or at least saturated place. But this sense of wonder is also described in the Christmas classic that's titled, It's the Most Wonderful Time of Year. This word wonderful, it literally means full of wonder. Full of wonder. And according to the lyrics of this song, the reason that Christmas time is so wonderful is due to the fact that there are parties for hosting, marshmallows toasting, yeah, and caroling out in the rain. Without debate, Christmas time is a wonderful time of year. It's a time that fills our hearts with wonder. And yet I must insist that 
the true sense of wonder that we all associate with Christmas time, it really can't be explained by snow-covered scenery, because I have no doubt that we're all filled with wonder here in this Christmas time, yet no snow on the ground here in Austin. Some of us might toast marshmallows later today, but what about those who don't? Are they still having a wonderful Christmas? I'm guessing so, because having a wonderful Christmas is not based on toasted marshmallows. So, so then with that being the case, well then what explains the sense of wonder that we feel even when we're not engaged in the middle of these so-called wonderful traditional aspects of Christmas? And, and who put the wonderful in Christmas? Like, you know, when, when we consider how wonderful this time of year is, why? Why is it so wonderful? Well, in order to consider this question... I want to take a moment to consider a prophecy that points to the birth of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, because I believe that it is Christ who makes Christmas so wonderful. As a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah presents us with this truth. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, it's verse 6, where he says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful. Now, there are more titles that Isaiah goes on to reveal, but here we find him referring to the one who would be called Wonderful. And he was, of course, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word wonderful that he used, it speaks of something that is so extraordinary that it causes us to marvel with amazement. And while I'm certain that we all agree that every baby is a wonderful gift of, uh, of God, we must not fail to recognize that the baby Jesus was the most wonderful baby ever born. To prove my point, let's take a little time to examine the extraordinary details surrounding the birth of our Savior Jesus. And with this as the focus, let's consider the account that Luke presented in his gospel. It's actually found in Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Here we read, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Here in these verses we find an angel named Gabriel He's helping Mary to understand that she had been specially chosen by God to bring forth this extraordinary child who is called Wonderful. Now put yourself in in Mary's sandals for a second. How would you react if an angel showed up one day, just out of the blue, and then told you that you would be giving birth to a supernatural son who would be a promised Messiah. I know how I would react. I would be completely amazed because I'm a man. 
And that just doesn't work. But seriously, you know, Mary was completely amazed by this angelic announcement. As a matter of fact, Luke presents us with Mary's reaction here in Luke chapter 1. Look with me here beginning at verse 34. Here Mary says to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Or in other words, she asked, what you talking about, Gabriel? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now here in these verses, we see how Mary's mind was filled with wonder. Her mind was filled with with wonder because she had never been with a man. She had never known a man. And yet, here's this angel announcing some sort of supernatural pregnancy. And she's attempting to understand how this could possibly be. Well, listen, for God, this is nothing. This is easy. God is all-powerful. He can do this. But she's in this state of wonder. She's wondering how this can be. And not only was the supernatural nature of her pregnancy completely amazing to her, but the identity of her baby was even more wonderful. The reason I say this is because Mary wasn't going to give birth to any ordinary baby. Now, I know, I know. Don't don't get offended when I say ordinary baby. I know that all parents believe that their baby is extraordinary. My parents were no different. I remember how my parents would always tell people that I was an extraordinary baby large baby. As a matter of fact, I was such a large baby that adult diapers barely fit me. Seriously, I actually scored 100 on my percentiles test. Last time I ever scored 100 on any test, but seriously though, all babies, all babies are wonderful. And yet what I mean to say when I say ordinary, that Jesus was no ordinary baby, well, listen, we have to understand that Jesus was more than just a human child. The child of Mary was more wonderful than the rest of us, and the reason why was due to the fact that Mary gave birth to the supernatural son of God, the second Adam, who was sent to save sinners like us. It's for this reason that Mary wondered in amazement at the prophetic promise of God. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Luke chapter 1. I want to begin reading at verse 46. Here we learn that Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord... And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maid servant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, here in these verses, we must not fail to notice that Mary, uh, as she sings this incredible song of praise, she magnified the Lord and her spirit rejoiced in God, she says, God, my Savior. Here we find Mary acknowledging the fact that she didn't ascend into heaven in some sort of sinless state, but rather she called upon God to save her. She recognized God as her Savior. And in verse 49, she sums up this song of celebration by acknowledging the fact that the mighty God had done great things for her. And it'll interest you to know that the Greek word translated great things Well, it can also be rendered wonderful works. In this way, Mary was acknowledging that her unplanned pregnancy was actually a wonderful work of God. 
And listen, not only was Mary amazed by the wonderful works of God, but her fiancé Joseph was also filled with a sense of wonder, but not in the same way. As a matter of fact, if you would look with me here at Matthew chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 1, or verse 18, I should say. Here we learn that the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly, but while he thought about these things. That's right, Joseph was thinking about these things. He spent time wondering and pondering what he had heard in the fact that this is his fiance Mary, informing him of the fact that she was pregnant and it wasn't his. And what's even more is that it was God's. And it's like, what? Hold on a second. How does this make any sense? Joseph, I have no doubt, is wrestling with all of this. And we learn here from Matthew that he was a just man, meaning that he had to bring justice into this situation, but he didn't want to make a public example of her. And so in his mind, he's thinking, well, she has to be punished for cheating on me, but I don't want to make an example of her. And so he was thinking about putting her away secretly. Or, or in other words, sending her away and, and separating himself from her, you know, so that she might not be exposed. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm going to guess that he's just wondering about all of these things. He's wondering how she could be pregnant. He's wondering how their relationship could be falling apart, in, uh, you know, before his very eyes. I have no doubt that he was wondering about her sanity. What do you mean God got you pregnant? That sounds crazy. And yet it was true. The Holy Spirit had placed the Logos into the womb of the Virgin Mary. And I'm so grateful that the Lord sent another angel, this time to Joseph, to calm his nerves and to help him to understand that all of this was real. With this in mind, if you would look with me here in Matthew chapter 1, we'll pick up at verse 20. There we learn that while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and she'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now here in these verses, we find an angel from, uh, from the Lord. The Lord sent this angel to confirm the wonderful news of Mary's supernatural pregnancy. And while Joseph wondered whether this was real or not, the angel confirms it. The wonder of concerned curiosity blossomed into the wonder of amazement as he realized that his soon-to-be wife was destined to give birth to the wonderful Messiah whose name is Jesus and whose title is Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
and listen as we consider their sense of wonder, I can assure you that the life of the Lord Jesus would continue to amaze the minds of Joseph and Mary and many, many more. For example, it's in Luke chapter 2. There we learn about the day when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple. And if you would look with me here at Luke 2, verse 21, here Luke writes, when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And as it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took, it, uh, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. They marveled. Joseph and Mary once again were filled with a sense of wonder as they considered the worship which was offered by this man named Simeon, who also was filled, you know, uh, had a heart that was filled with wonder as he saw the child Jesus. And you better believe that all of Israel ended up being filled with the same sense of wonder as they watched the life of the Lord Jesus unfolding here on the earth. For example, when Jesus was a young boy, Mary and Joseph found him in the temple. And he was sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And according to Luke, all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Or more literally, their minds were filled with wonder as they listened to the questions of our young Messiah. The gospel writers also describe the way in which the multitudes marveled as wonder filled their minds as they watched Jesus healing the sick, restoring sight to the blind, enabling the lame to walk, even casting out demons. Then when Jesus revealed that he had the power to forgive sins, Matthew tells us that the multitudes marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Not only that, but the minds of Christ's disciples were constantly filled with wonder as they followed the Lord Jesus Christ. They marveled when he calmed the storm. And they marveled when he cursed the fig tree. And when he rose up from the grave on the third day, they marveled with incredible wonder as they began to realize that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die and then to rise from the dead on the third day. Based on all of these things, we can see that Jesus truly is wonderful. He truly is wonderful. From the womb to the tomb, he has caused the minds of men to be amazed and astonished by the wonderful works of God. And this is precisely the point that the Lord Jesus was making 
in John chapter 5. It's verse 20 where he declares, The Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, that you may be filled with a sense of wonder. Everything that the Lord Jesus accomplished here on the earth was so that we might be filled with a sense of wonder. That's for this reason that he's called wonderful. He's called wonderful because those who seek him will be astonished and amazed with a sense of wonder. And that's really good news, especially for those of us who have lost our sense of wonder along the way. This was certainly the case for me. I had lost my sense of wonder. By, by the time I was even 20, I just, to, in my mind, there was just nothing wonderful anymore. Rather than seeing Christmas time as the most wonderful time of the year, you know, I, I just thought it was the cringiest time of the year. You know, most of my friends would disappear and go home and go see their friends and family and all that, and, and, and I would just go hang out in whatever bar was open all by myself. To me, it was just like, oh, here's Christmas again. I'm just going to hang out by myself, try to self-medicate. In order to understand, you know, the reason for all of this, I should spend a minute just presenting you with a bit of my testimony. You see, I grew up in a Christian home, and, you know, my dad was one of these reluctant churchgoers just trying to make my mom happy. But my mom was completely committed to Christ, just completely committed to Christ. That is until 1981 when, you know, she was diagnosed with cancer and died just before my 13th birthday. She was committed to Christ all the way up until her death, and I have no doubt that she's with her Savior right now. But at that point in time, I was angry. I was angry with God, and I wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And since Christmas was a holiday that's tied together with the birth of Jesus Christ, well, I really wanted nothing to do with Christmas either. Didn't care about the, the, the Christmas songs. Every time I started hearing the Christmas songs and seeing the decorations and all of that, it was just cringe. And it was with bitterness in my heart that I, that I went on to live my life in pursuit of personal pleasure apart from the wonderful things that the Lord wanted to do for me. And it's sad to say that I wasted the next 12 years of my life from the death of my mom and, until my conversion. I wasted 12 years searching for something that was wonderful in this world and never found it. I went down different roads, went down different paths, searching for something that was wonderful and Never found it. All of my searching only resulted in disappointment and depression. By the time I was 25, I was just over it, tired of living. And I'd come to the conclusion that there was nothing wonderful in this world. Thankfully, I was proven wrong. The Lord sent someone into my life who began to present me with the proof of Jesus' resurrection. And I began to consider their arguments. At first, I just wanted to disprove them, to show them that there's nothing wonderful about Jesus. But they continued to present me with empirical evidence that helped me to see that the Lord Jesus really did rise up from the grave just as he promised. For example, I was confronted with the words of a first century Jewish historian named Josephus who says this about Jesus. He says, there was about this time Jesus, 
a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these, and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. That's That's the writing of a Jewish historian from the first century who wrote about a man named Jesus who was condemned to the cross by a Roman man named Pilate. And not only that, but according to this extra biblical author, Jesus appeared to his disciples on the third day after his death. On the third day after his crucifixion, he appeared to his disciples. And from this, we see that there is credible evidence from an extra-biblical source which demonstrates the historical reliability of the story of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Not only that, but I uh, I was also challenged to explain the conversions of men like Luke, James, and Paul. My buddy who led me to the Lord, he, he wanted to, me to explain, how, why is it that guys like Luke, James, and Paul, who became Christians after the resurrection, what, what explains their conversion? For example, Luke's conversion was very difficult to explain because he was actually a Gentile physician who came along after the fact. He came along after the resurrection, and he interviewed all of the eyewitnesses. He went and interviewed Mary and Joseph, and he went and interviewed the, uh, the disciples and the apostles and He went and interviewed everyone. And then after his interview, after he engaged in his own investigation, became a believer. The evidence there in the first century convinced him to convert to Jesus Christ. And you better believe that had he found discrepancies and contradictions along the way that he would have just dismissed it all. And yet for him there was sufficient evidence to become a believer. Therefore, Luke's conversion for me was convincing proof that Jesus Christ had in fact risen from the grave. Not only that, but the conversion of James was also proof that Jesus rose up from the grave. And the reason I say this is due to the fact that James was the brother of Jesus Christ. You know, J- James was, I guess you could say, the half brother, being the child of Joseph and Mary. And can you imagine growing up with Jesus being your big brother? I have no doubt that Mary was constantly saying to James, why can't you be more like Jesus? She probably created the first WWJD bracelet to make all the kids in the house remember. What would Jesus do here? But listen, James wasn't a follower or a disciple of Jesus during the days of his earthly ministry. No, James, the brother of Jesus, became a follower of Christ after the resurrection. What changed his mind? The conversion of James helped me to see that Jesus must have risen from the grave because what else would explain the conversion of James apart from the resurrection of Jesus? Finally, I was convinced by the conversion of Paul and the reason why is due to the fact that Paul was an antagonistic Jewish 
Pharisee who was completely committed to the persecution of the Christian church. He truly believed that he was serving God in persecuting these Christians. But then his mind was changed on the day as he was traveling to Damascus on the way to go and persecute Christians in Damascus. And according to Paul, who gives his testimony a few times in the Bible, he tells us that the risen Lord appeared to him there on the road to Damascus and challenged him about his rejection of the Messiah. even said to Paul, hey, why are you kicking against the goads? Isn't this hard? And as a result, Paul repented of his sins and placed his faith in the promised Messiah. Now, how do you account for the conversion of Paul if there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't. The conversion of Paul helped me to see that there is good proof for the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. And after considering the weight of these arguments that were being presented to me, you know, I found my heart for the first time in years welling up with a sense of wonder. I found my heart welling up with a sense of wonder as I began to realize that there's good reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but I was amazed and astonished as I began to realize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually the evidence of his wonderful love that he provides to those who simply trust in him. In order to prove my point, let's take a moment to consider Uh, The statement that Jesus made in John chapter 3, verse 16, where Jesus says this. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The father sent his only begotten son, gave Jesus as a gift so that we might receive the wonderful love of the Lord. It was the wonderful love of the Lord that led him then to lay down his life so that sinners like us could be saved by faith in his substitutionary sacrifice. That being the case, the resurrection of Jesus, well, it became the proof for me that God has in fact provided us with this wonderful love. The, the birth of the baby Jesus, to me, was backed up or, or supported by the resurrection. As I looked at the evidence for the resurrection, all of a sudden I realized that the story of Christmas, the story of the, our incarnate Savior, was then also proved. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that the birth of Jesus Christ is a supernatural event. And with that, I encourage everyone who has yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to realize that there is good reason for the resurrection. Therefore, there's good reason to believe in the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas time. And with that, I encourage you to trust in Jesus Christ. But then what does it mean to trust in Jesus? And with this question in mind, if you would look with me here at Luke chapter 18, I want to begin reading at verse 15. Here here Luke writes, Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. 
Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus, he's helping his disciples to understand that those who truly trust in him will have a faith that is comparative to the faith of a child. And in order to understand what this looks like, I invite you to think back to the wonder years of your own childhood. Now, I realize this trip down memory lane is going to take more time for some of us. But with that, I just want to remind you that the mind of a child is like a little sponge that is ready to soak up all information. Children have an insatiable appetite for knowledge. And, and you know, that this leads them into that era of their life where everything is why. You tell them something, why? You say something else, why? You answer that question, why? A, a long line of whys. And sadly, you know, we get to the point in our lives where we no longer ask the why questions because we think we're supposed to know everything. This happens typically about 13. And we have to pretend like we know everything, so we stopped asking the why questions and we just let, you know, the mainstream media answer those questions for us. I encourage you to go back to those why years, to look at every single thing that you see, every, every, every statement that you hear, ask why. Why is this true? What is the evidence for this? What, you know, we should ha- continue to want to learn and, and, and have that sense of wonder that little kids have, right? When we were kids, you know, and, and we asked those why questions, we were led to answers that we embraced by faith. Little parents trust their parents. Our little kids trust their parents by faith. And this is what the Lord Jesus is saying, is that you have to enter the kingdom of God by faith. We we are called to have this childlike faith in God the Father's plan to send his only begotten son, to provide us with the substitutionary sacrifice by which our sins are forgiven. It's with childlike faith that we embrace this. It's by childlike faith that we receive the free gift of God's grace. Those who come to Christ with childlike faith will rest in the fact that the Lord Jesus has accomplished all the work necessary for our salvation. Much like a little child who totally believes that parents are going to bring the food home, parents are going to pay for the for, for the home that they're living in. Parents are going to get them to school on time. You're like, look, this is just blind faith that kids place in their parents. And this is how the Lord wants us to live, by faith in him. Just trusting that our God is able to accomplish all these things for those who trust in him. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will simply be added to you. It's with the faith of a child that we embrace that and rest in this truth. And it's with the faith of of a child that we can have a sense of wonder once again as we wait to see how God the Father is going to work all these things out for the good of those who love him. Please trust me when I tell you that those who place their faith in Jesus not only receive the forgiveness of sins, which is wonderful, but we also rejoice as the Lord restores us and, and provides us with a sense of wonder that we once had when we were kids. When I, when I realized that Jesus Christ had ridden, risen from the grave, I was once again filled with that sense of wonder. And I've continued to be just uh, refreshed with that sense of wonder as I've continually watched the Lord just working uh, miracles in the lives of the people around me. 
I can assure you that ever since I placed my faith in the one who is called wonderful, my life has been wonderful because Jesus is wonderful. If you've lost that sense of wonder and you're tired of being disappointed and depressed by all the worldly things that fail to satisfy the soul, I encourage you to embrace the gift of God's grace, which is received by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as you do, you'll experience the wonders of his love. Just as Isaac Watts wrote about when he penned the lyrics of that Christmas classic, Joy to the World. Those who trust in Jesus Christ will enjoy that sense of wonder that the Lord gives to those who trust in him. Please trust me when I tell you that God's love for us is a wonderful love. And it's for this reason that we should sing the praises of the one who is truly wonderful. With this as the goal, I'd like to invite our children's choir up to now lead us in a time of extended worship. And so if you have a child uh, who is going to be part of the child's choir, we're going to have you guys line up over here in this, uh, you know, loud, squirmy section. And we've got, we've got uh, lumberjacks who are going to take podiums off the stage and... <laughs> 